Wan smoke. Broken. The once and future kings. Three ounces of ground cinnabar, eleven ounces of saltpeter, two ounces of ground charcoal, and a flask of proxylic spirit. It is that last ingredient that I've contemplated the most. What is its purpose? Does it really do nothing more than turn the flames translucent blue? Then why did a race of blind troglodytes go to such lengths as to include it in their formula? The answer I discovered in the shadowed labyrinth beneath my inner lake. The negredo, the blackness, that which cannot be seen, the cold, the terror, the unknown, dissolution. For the black flame is the shadow on the wall by which one imagines the truth outside his perception. It is the symbol of our ignorance and the conduit through which the spirits whisper their secrets. When transmuted inside the proper vessel, it is the alkahest, the first and final steps in the creation of the lapis. Kanti's contemplations from inside the labyrinth, symbolism in alchemy. Inside the soul lies labyrinthine darkness, cavernous twisting tunnels, dead ends and pitfall traps, black shafts that descend to hell as the marigolders know it. But in south, hell is what they call the northern mountains, where to venture means certain death and consumption by miasma. They're wrong, of course, just as they fail to understand the artificial divide between the spirits of the occult and of the religion of the patriarch. They make a prophecy of their doubts and fears, and thus lose sight that even the blind sees further into the shadows than those of greater vision, further even than kings. Thus do I awaken in the cool of the night on the short tufts of grass and soft mud of the riverbank. Changed. My eye is open, the one that remains pale, useless, and probably destroyed like the rest of my face exposed to the miasma. I can feel where the flesh has gone. It's as if the skin has been pulled so taut as to show the bones around my cheeks and nose and eye sockets. Tightness, but no pain. No stench or sting of the miasma either. Strange, I think. Then I remember the resurrection, the mithril cage, the little silver bones, the girl. Broken, I call out sitting up and swiveling my head around out of habit. Did the spell work? Are you all right? Are you there? Broken? Slow thy tongue, knave, replies a tiny, mousy voice. How can answereth a loyal servant when thou leavest no heir for my tongue to wag? Then another speaks up from closer to the river's hush, and at once the tension goes from my neck and shoulders. It's my seer, my daughter, and I've never heard her so happy before. I'm over here, she says. Come quickly. There's something I want to show you. So I assume the resurrection was a success? Hurry up, before a cloud or another Nixie comes, or before the river picks up again. It's in the moonlight, in the reflection. Hurry! All right, all right. I crawl to my feet, expecting aches and pains. Yet my body feels more rested than it did before the start of this journey, albeit hungry. Starving, really though without the usual exhaustion that results from invoking the spirits. Curious, I ask again. Broken, are you sure you're all right? I need you to answer me. I forget exactly what direction she's in. Help out your blind old man. You're not that old, and I don't want to ruin the surprise. Are you sure? I ask, 
crossing cautiously toward her voice, trying to avoid the cage, tripping over it instead. Clumsy peasant, scathes the tiny one. I ignore her and continue stumbling till the calm, quiet river sounds louder than her mousy shouts. I stop. The girl stands and turns, crunching reeds under her feet, and starts, Canty, look, I'm not broken anymore. I'm... She gasps. I guess this is the first time she's got a good look at how bad the damage is. You're like Gerard, she says. Only you're white instead of black, and your eyes don't glow with those scary shafts of light. Hold on, slow down. What do you mean you're not broken anymore? Her tone pitches low with disappointment. So you really can't see, not even with the eye on your forehead. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work like that. No, I'm blind as the day I was born. Does that mean I get to be your seer again? I pat her atop her soaked, knotted hair. You never weren't, my seer. Broken throws herself against my cuirass and squeezes tight. I flinch, expecting a sudden stabbing from the crossbow bolt that Chaka helped lodge inside my ribcage. Again, no pain, just a warm hug from my little girl, as she explains. It was the fey blood, I think. We were both covered in it when we came out of the water. And now the serpent's curse is gone. I wanted to show you. My face, it's... She trails off, unsure what to say. So I finish for her. It's beautiful. And finite, mocks the old king. Unless the child wants to become a fairy slayer. Ogier, you treacherous ass. Anger flares in my heart, and I seethe aloud. You knew... Broken steps back and asks who I'm talking to. It's Ogier, isn't it? What did that jerk say? I hesitate, contemplating whether I should tell her what I just heard. It might not be true, I finally decide to say. He told me that you're right about the fey blood, but that it won't last forever. It's not a cure. You'll have to keep getting more like it's medicine. Then we still have a reason to go on those adventures you promised. Oh, I almost forgot. Ask that jerk why Chaka attacked us. I bet he had something to do with it. Well, I think aloud, but the old king stays silent. Strange, he's usually so eager to gloat, but Broken isn't taking nothing for an answer. If he won't talk, let's have Gerard smash up the sword. I bet he wouldn't like that at all. I bet I wouldn't like that either. And besides, Gerard's all the way back home. That's right, I keep forgetting you can't see. She turns and summons a crunching from some nearby reeds. Gerard's here with us, she explains. He came chasing after Chaka, I think, and ran into us while you were fainted. Her attention switches to the sword in my hand. What do you say to that, evil old Ogier? We got Gerard, and he's got a mace ready to knock your teeth out, maybe break your kneecaps or blunt your edges. I sigh. Broken. What did I say about threatening people like that? He's not a person. He's a ghost. And I'm not broken anymore. Then what should I call you? She thinks it over and answers timidly. I don't know. I guess you can call me Ashlyn. Ashlyn? Really? I ask, perhaps a little too surprised. I expect her to talk back, defiant, but instead she whimpers. That's my name, isn't it? The name my mother gave me before I was broken. You were always broken, kid, and you always will be, I think. 
But it's not the right time to tell her why being whole is impossible. That it's all right that she not be perfect. So instead, I say, Ashlyn it is then. My point is, it's probably worse to threaten ghosts than humans. Remember what happened to Uncle Nostius? Those were trolls, though, and we don't know what even happened to him. Exactly. It's dangerous making such hasty threats. You don't know what curses might befall you. Curses? But he probably got shot up by crossbow bolts. Anyway, I've got to give the sword to Edwin as payment for my debt. That sets the girl aghast. Wait, does that mean we aren't going back for the others? But they're still up there somewhere, and there's treasure, and we have Gerard now, and... And they have Chaka and the Miasma and an army, according to Dermot. We're going to need Grant's help, and the whole SS, and the Mystics, as well as anyone else we can conscript. Broken goes quiet, so I soften as I continue. I'm sorry, but it's all we can do. All our supplies are ruined, and I don't know how long the fairy will last inside that cage without transmogrifying. Long enough if thou releasest me from mine iron prison, the fluttering sylph cries. We walk from the river's edge over to the cage, a few easy steps with my seer's guidance. As we approach, I notice for the first time the constant pressure of air pushing outward from inside the mithril wire. It's a warm wind, almost like breath, fluctuating with the thrum of the fairy's wings. So that's how this works. We're protected from the miasma by the phase hovering safe away from the mithril wire walls. So long as she never rests, we can breathe easy. But there's no telling how long before she tires, or worse. The last thing we need is a hot-blooded gremlin coming for our throats while poison curtains close in from every direction. So, I give the order. No one here is to lend an ear to the sylph, nor her tricks, lies, or false bargains. No matter how much she begs, no matter what she promises, we do not trust the Fae. That night, we don again our battle-scarred headdresses, and begin the long, blind march for Township South. Gerard leads the way, carrying the cage underarm, tapping its metal bars with the head of his mace in time with the rhythm of his tireless legs. Broken and I do our best to keep pace. It's hard at first. Our legs burn, and with every growl of our empty stomachs, our heads hurt worse than after a night at the wine tap. Yet, as we press on through the impenetrable darkness, our journey becomes one of levity. The air in our lungs ceases to sting and begins healing instead. Every swing of our limbs pumps them with rejuvenating blood. Our own, or the Nixies, or some infusion of sylvan wind. No one knows except the great spirits and mayhap King Ogier, though none of them are talking. But we are. The girl and I can't stop musing about what wonderful food we're going to gorge ourselves on once we're back at the vault. Sausage and gravy over fried dough and eggs, bacon baked with apple slices and cinnamon, and two big cups of turmeric tea. Not that we'll be able to afford it, especially after resolving my debt with Van Edwin. Then there's paying guild rates to patch holes in our clothes and armor. And after that, we'll still need to replace our packs, brass caps, wand powder, water skins, and medicine, depending how long the healing properties of fairy blood lasts. And miasma filters too, broken insists, wanting to go fey hunting as soon as possible. I understand. 
She'd rather not go back to bandages if we can help it. So I promise her that I'll do what's in my power to ensure her curse doesn't return a second more than is necessary. Of course, how I'm going to do that while blind and stripped of the eyes and Ogier's wisdom, I have no idea. But it's a future worth toiling toward, a fate worth chasing after. What do you think, you evil bastard? I ask the old king between speaking with Broken. No answer, just a vague premonition of fear in the future, and of hope submerged deep inside the eye of Black Lake. Wait, thoughts emerge of their own design. You're trying to find yourself. Is that right? I ask. Because this is the first time it's occurred to me that the ancient, great, and powerful spirit, the old King Ogier, has not yet himself explored the depths toward which he has already guided me. I realize that though his eyes have stayed open over the span of centuries, they stare more blindly even than those of the Clan of the Antler. Without insight, until now, I forewarn the old king, you won't like what you find there, amidst the bedlam where fear is lord. You must be willing to accept your station, to relinquish that which has thus far sustained you, but which no longer does. Can you give up your heart and soul of lead, or do you believe yourself already golden? We'll have to see when the time comes. Until then, hours pass over the rolling hills like breath in conversation. Broken and I get to talking again, and this time the Sylph decides to join us. Mercy! She begs for the giant slayer to stop his constant tapping of mace and cage. We refuse. With no light to guide our way, Gerard's rhythmic rapping is our only means of navigation through the black of night. As I am your sole means of breathing amidst this human filth, so lest ye wish to become mist and I an abomination, command thy thrall to ceaseth his uninspired beating and to releaseth me free into mine heirs. Not a chance, I say. Even if we were trapped atop the Hellgates, we'd risk you transmogrifying before trusting you wouldn't stab us in the back. I pause and allow what I've said to sink in, then suggest my alternative. The only way I'd free you of that cage is under contract as... Never! She hisses before I can finish, and she means it. I know because she goes quiet after that, as do I, though Broken tries a few more times to persuade her to become our friend. No luck, no success, just the four of us marching blind in silence to the rhythm of mithril wire and macehead, to our feet falling on dead, spiky grass growing softer as we walk southward along the grieving river deep, loud now and violent, contested only by the fairy winds tearing leaves from the trees all around us. We must be entering the forest. I feel the miasmatic residue like molasses under my boots, smell the caustic mist stinging my sinuses. And the deeper we tread, the denser the miasma gets, the more it weighs down our phase weary wings, the more our ward shrinks, the more shallowly we breathe as the humidity rises, and with it the heat and airborne acidity. And we're only a few minutes' march under the canopy, a few hours from town, so close yet simultaneously an impossible distance if this poison mist closes in on us. Gerard, hold up! I order the Revenant to hand over the cage for another interrogation, 
but the sylph strikes first. Save thy breath, burnt one, she says, her tiny voice smaller, her speech slurred and slowing, a better fate for us to perish than to become a slave to ye shadowed souls. Where have I heard that before? I think to myself in jest, a bit of black humor and a bad comparison. This has got to go better than my negotiation with Dermot. But what could I say to undo centuries of prejudice? I don't know, broken replies as if answering my thoughts. The kobolds back home seem happy to be slaves. They make the SS look like a bunch of lazy bones with how well behaved they are now that they're employed. Sometimes I forget that they burned down houses, killed a bunch of townsfolk, and cursed a bunch more. But like I said, they're good now, and happier. The sylph spits. Compare me not to those house-fay race traitors, kings kith and shadow kin. May their backs bow under iron chains. A woe upon them. A woe... She starts, but a coughing fit interrupts her curse. It gives me time to think. Playing off of Broken's niceness, I lean into my best Ogier impression and scoff. Listen, Pest. Your fate is as I command it, whether or not you submit. Either take the girl's mercy, bend the knee, and serve as our familiar. Or I'll ensure you're transmogrified and sold into service as a mutilated gremlin rope hauler in cynics under city. Nay, she coughs. Such is not in your power, humans. When your souls are devoured, I shall be free from mankind's curse. The sylph goes on, hacking more and more frequently. Seems to me she's more sensitive to the mist than we are, so I let her exhaust what clean air is left to her lungs before I respond. Not to her, but to Gerard. If we die before making it back to south, I want you to deliver this fairy to Van Edwin as payment for my debt. Do not let her succumb to the miasma, you understand? Returning to the fairy. And you, do you understand? Or do you still doubt? Broken relays the command, while I wait for the Fay to answer. It's a painful minute that passes by. My throat burns from speaking so windedly with the fog creeping in, though my nerves feel worse. We're dead and done for if this doesn't work. Lucky us, she breaks and says, Ye are truly and fully human, whose will is always subjugation, so be it. Better to keep mine own blood than my name, Moadnight. There it is for ye to pillage. Ye may make me kneel, but never will ye corrupt mine essence, Moadnight. It's not until she tells me her name that I connect the contracts I made with the Fey prisoners. They had done the same as we pierced their ears with rings of golden anvil steel. We had made them familiars, and now Broken and I do the same with this sylph. Gerard tears the butted mithril ring from atop the cage and twists it into a skin-tight coil around one of the fairy's legs. It burns her at first, a tiny sizzle of blistering flesh and little hisses of pain as we state the terms of Muad Knight's enslavement. Henceforth, she is bound to the person of my seer, Ash Lynn. She shall obey her commands and betray her not till the day of her dying breath. Then, and only then, shall her freedom be returned. Do you submit to these conditions? I ask Moad Knight. What choice hast thou left me? 
she gasps between troubled breaths. I shall become familiar to you, humans. There it is done. Now release me. If that's what completes the ritual, it's not very ceremonious. No signs of magic or the presence of the spirits. We just have to trust that what worked for the kobolds and that what we suspect worked on the trolls will hold this fairy from fleeing into the woods and leaving us to our doom. But what other choices do we have than to risk suffering our fears or to suffocate with certainty while fleeing from them? We open the cage and at once storm gales surge from the open hatch and from between the wire bars. They catch us off guard would knock us over if not for the residue adhering our boots to the forest floor. But we managed to keep our feet, albeit deafened by the howling squall like the call of a thousand owls. I'm not sure which is louder, the gale itself, or its stripping of leaves, or the wind snapping branches, or the crash as those broken boughs tumble into the weeds. Then it's over in an instant. The breeze calms, till the only sound is the hum of wings as familiar Muadnate hovers above her cage, rejuvenated by such a small expansion of freedom. It's like some creatures really are born to be slaves, I think, for a moment, then dismiss it. That's the old king's opinions creeping into my own. Then what is it, I think? I'm not sure I'd side with the likes of Lohan, as noble as that madman seems. I mean, he's probably right about the evils of gremlin slavery, especially in places like Cynic's Undercity. Their mutilated bodies are still awful to contemplate, but is it the same as at the Blast Furnace in Glassboro? Is making the Fae into familiars any different just because they retain their sylvan forms? And if it's not, what's the alternative? Robbery, kidnapping, hunting, and murder are all I can come up with as we wade southward through residue and woods. So I ask Broken what she thinks about it. Hmm, she hums and answers. I think sometimes fairies are like hobs, and sometimes hobs are like people, and sometimes people are like monsters, or mushrooms, or mushroom monsters. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. No, thou knowest not of what thou speaks, squeaks Muadnate. I admit, I don't know how her response relates to fey slavery, but I'll be struck and damned by the wise patriarch's lightning before I let that little pest discourage my seer. Instead, I reach about till I find Broken's hand and give it a squeeze, pretending that it's the fairy. I reply, Don't listen to her. Keep going, please. I want to hear what you have to say. She stammers, It's hard, because it's like everybody's the same. I mean, they're all bad, I guess. Except for the good ones. But then, a lot of the time, they were bad too, in the beginning. Like who? I ask, and she lists Edgar, Grant, Chaka, and the Kobolds, and maybe even Ogie, though she's still not sure on that one. Curious, and still not certain where her mind is going, I press further. So what happened that made them good? Humming between, she starts and stops. Several thoughts mid-explanation before finally deciding upon us, she says trepidly, then with greater confidence. We did. We were what it was that made them good. It warms my heart, though maybe that's the shafts of light we cross under growing broader by the step as the forest canopy thins. Whatever it is, 
I think that I'm finally starting to understand, as she is, as she says. It's better than before. Everyone is happier, except maybe for Grant. But that's his fault, because he's just mad he didn't get to turn the cursed into an alchemical weapon. Oh, and Dermot too, but he was almost as stubborn as was Mr. Bilar. If they were alive, I bet they'd be just as happy as the rest of the prisoners. Moad Knight interjects, adder venomous. I knew it. Ye humankind are naught but wellsprings of tyranny and corruption. Woe is me that I am bound to thy blackened soul, to that gloomy ring more oppressive even than mine abhorrent shackle. And happy dare sayest thou, how content could be my kin and kith, draped now in chains, when freely they reigned before the coming of the shadowed king and his human miasma. About that, I ask. Ogier mentioned something about sylphs gulling children off cliffs. Lies, is the response I expect from the Fae. Yet what I get is something far more telling. She raves. Tell me, burnt one, for we fair folk cannot comprehend how it is ye humans blame us, when and whence it has been ye who stand the eternal transgressors. By what right complain ye that a few kindled souls perished by fair hands, when your own are coated with blood red and silver? All guilt lies with you, as doth evil and hate. With you, not us. We act only what is in our nature, yet ye have none of your own, so ye cast your hungry shadows of oppression. Even when from you we fled the motherland to this island refuge, ye followed us. Ye cursed our ways, cursed our making the kindled ones forever bright. Verily, the thought that we might find kith to absolve our loneliness and grief offended you who desire only darkness, death, and the torturous toil of the poorest and freest for the rule of the few. Shoot me, I think after at least an hour's march, listening to the tiny, wingy, girly version of Dermot's resentment. I didn't expect, of all things, that the fairy herself would be the one to convince us that what we're doing is correct. It just goes to show how little I know, how dependent I am on others' wisdom and senses. I don't even notice as we leave the woods until broken comments. Then all at once, the whole world comes alive like crossing from a nightmare into the loud and cozy reality of South. What's left of my nose floods with the sweet stink of summer. Sweaty bodies, many reeking of alcohol, animals and their filth trampled into the soil, hints of soot and of herbs wafting from the distant guild halls. And from ovens and fire pits within taverns and homes comes the odor of baking bread and of the frying of dough. All this immersed in the sounds of civilization, sounds that I had forgotten, like the drumming of footsteps in and around the market, the haggling and chattering, the bang of doors thrown either open or closed, somewhere, a dog's barking, a wagon's creaking into town, Children are playing, infants are crying, old men are arguing about the politics of Village South, and there are new sounds as well. I was too distracted to notice them prior, yet somehow I'm sure they were always present. There's the cooing of pigeons dancing atop roofs, both thatch and shingle. Either way, the birds' scaly feet scratch as they adjust to our presence, 
hopping from one spot to the next, always watchful for dropped crumbs, for sudden movements, for odd sounds, such as the cocking of wand hammers, half a dozen at least. The pigeon's wings beat the air, and only as it clears do I process what Broken said. I think Grant is being dumb again. Don't one of you dare move! You're under arrest! rattles off a lawman with a tremble in his voice. It's Mr. PSO, and it seems he hasn't forgotten his trouble with Chalquar and Malzell. If only his memory worked well enough that he could tell them apart from us. He threatens, If any you starts talking one of them spells, I swear on your damn merry patriarch, we'll shoot. You got it? Where's Grant? I ask, non-compliant. As marshal and constable, he'll want to know about what happened, that Dermot's tip was legitimate, that the old king's alleged army is real, and that they're armed and more than ready for war, that they've taken the eye of Amgeen and their first casualties. It's my fault. The thought dawns on me now that Broken and I are finally safe, that we lost Nostius and the Green Deputy and the Junior Scout. Then a greater part of myself rises like the sun on the horizon. It challenges my guilt with a question, how so? And with that outshines those initial fabricant emotions. Remember what's important. Getting past Mr. PSO takes precedence, then informing Grant, then getting ready ourselves for what is to come. Hopefully, the news will prove enough of a diversion that this elixir-addicted idiot will forget me and the girl. I let him know. I've got information for the constable about a likely threat to... Shut it, the deputy flaps his mouth. Don't try and defend yourselves. Depps Dalton and Clay told us the whole story. You and them other loonies turned on them not three days in, in a setup done by you damned pothecaries, so you wouldn't have to split the goods. That's five counts of assault on a township official and one charge with conspiracy with the Fae. Five counts of those lying craven bastards, my temper flares. I swear, if this is about us not sharing our breakfast, I'm going to... Calm down, I tell myself, and ask again. Where's Grant? Constable's in his office with a fat sack of coin waiting on word of your arrest. He's giving out your fines as rewards to whatever depths catch you. Sixty-two and a half silver for each count of assault, and five fat gold ones for getting in bed with them fairies. What's that? Four hundred merry-gold silver? Good thing me and the boys learned how to share. But not how to count, Broken interjects. What did you... The idiot starts. The girl cuts him off. The reward? It's 392 silver and eight copper pieces. Then she asks me, Conti, why are adults so stupid sometimes? I smile and try to think of a pithy reply. Instantly, a realization flashes like a pile of wand powder ignited inside my mind. Literally, I imagine the grey-black granules hiding inside the locks and barrels of the deputy's staffs as if they became swaths of Bradwar's flame. What a fool I am for not seeing it sooner. I answer, sometimes, no, most of the time, as people get older, they become more blind to things they don't want to see, like themselves. 
like their weaknesses. Shut it! The deputy shouts. You ain't tricking me with that rubbish. We got Koraba, Korola, Kabora. We got word from that old timer that you was fighting over loot. So you just drop your weapons and tell your monsters to go back into the woods where they came from. Or else what? I ask. Not really a question. Inquiry I save for within myself. Are you sure you can do this even without the eye? Even if OGA doesn't help? With just a single word? Mr. PSO's voice trembles. Or else we'll, we'll, we'll shoot you to pieces. Try it, speaks aloud the spirit of my greater self. And the deputy sputters, What did you... Uroboros! I'm about to say when Grant's command cleaves through the tension. He calls for his men to put up their wands. I'll take it from here. The rest of you, on board a patrol, now! You're leaving us vulnerable. Don't forget that we have enemies to the south. Then to us, I just received my second public complaint about strange noises in the forest, and came as soon as policy would allow. We were uncertain that anyone aside from Senior Guild Scout Flint survived the ambush, but it appears that the citizen casualty rate was closer to half than a mass slaughter. Thanks for your concern, I reply without hiding the sarcasm. I'd roll my eyes as well if I had any left. But I don't, so I jest instead. I was just about to come looking for you to tell you what we're up against, but I'm not sure, broken and I constitute enough witnesses for the constabulary to consider the threat credible. Does Gerard count? Oh, and before you charge us with conspiracy, the little one is our new prisoner. Prisoner? What crime committed have I for thou to condemn me so? Grant pauses a moment probably to assess whether my decision is lawful. And in the meantime, Mr. PSO works up the courage to question his superior. Constable, he starts. But about the reward. You promised a bounty for the traitor's heads. You even signed a paper. An ordinance, Grant corrects him. Which, if you took the time to read it, stated clearly that I reserved the power as constable to rescind the criminal accusations and monetary reward upon receiving further evidence or witness testimony, which I have, and I've decided to rescind them. His tone hardens. Now, you have your orders. I want you out of my sight and patrolling the border. Just because you're injured doesn't mean you're free from duty. Mr. Piso gasps and sputters. But boss, you know I can't read. And what about justice for my broken hands? and we stayed out here for days waiting for these loonies to show up. It's not fair to me and the boys. The next sound I hear is the swipe of steel-clearing leather, then the click of Grant's six-shot wheel-wand. I'm not asking, he says deadpan. That is an order. Obey immediately, or you're all arrested for treason, martial defiance of a superior officer, and dereliction of duty, misuse of township property, armed coercion, and littering. At once, grumbling scuffs the wind as hobnails scape the earth. The deputies scatter like a band of orphans disappointed to discover that there won't be a second serving of porridge today, that to ask for one will get them naught but wrapped about the knuckles with a cane. I savor the victory. It's good their wands remain operational, 
if we're going to war with what is to come. Broken, though, isn't so patient. She blurts out, Can I send the SS after them? Those jerks should be mining salt in the vault. Negative, Grant responds. We need men ready in case there's an attack. His eyes divert from the girl to the Fae, then back to me as he says, I approve of your decision, Warden. You'll receive no harassment from the constabulary so long as the fairy stays under lock and key. Seest thou? A soul before thee utterly swollen with tyranny and corruption. Thanks, I sigh, exhausted. Broken asks, can we go home now? Not yet, citizens. You're both legally obligated to give me your reports. From what Senior Flint alleged, we've got testimony of multiple incursions. I presume this prisoner is one of the enemy combatants? Grant questions us the whole walk to his office, then again once we're inside. With quill and paper, he scratches our answers. Apparently, there's going to be a trial, and he wants a clear-cut account of what occurred out in the wild. So it makes sense that he seems almost disappointed when I tell him that, other than the trolls and the Nixie attack, we didn't actually see who was responsible. Only that Junior Barney was shot by accident, and that the two returning deputies had fled in dereliction of duty. Our story corroborates with the Guild Scout's testimony, which makes evidence enough that both deserters will be hanged if found guilty by two of three town councillors. Senior Flint, too, will face the same fate, charged for the negligent death of his companion. That's not fair! Broken and Muad Knight claim that the constable is being unnecessarily cruel, that what happened was an accident. And the girl even tries to say it was really her fault for shooting at that Nixie without telling anyone first. Grant hears none of it, so fixated is he on the identity of the gatehouse assassins that no matter how many times I tell him I didn't see, he keeps asking till I say that they might have been Hobbs operating those crossbows. I warn him about the army of gnolls that Dermot foretold, which, if real, could march down from the mountain and on to south at any moment, maybe even tonight if the old king's husk considers our expedition a provocation. Or an excuse, I think, is entirely more likely, but Grant refuses to believe either is possible. The old king's soul is inside his sword, and you have the sword right there. It's most probably a band of rogue ghouls. I'll put in an order for civil service rod models and have all the deputies load them with silver shot. In the meantime, we'll have to make do with rock salt. You said it was effective against the Fae? The Fae aren't what you should be worried about. What does the old king say? Grant asks, short and quick as a frightened dog snaps. Nothing, I think, and Ogier declines to comment or question or so much as scoff at me or the situation. It's unlike him, but maybe he's sequestered himself inside the mithril blade. After all, what's it worth haunting me without my access to the eye? And why bother when a new prospect lies in his near future? A new owner, a new host, a new means to be reunited with his former state of strength. Is that what you think? Even after Chaka came after the eye but paid you no mind? No answer. Nothing. Our testimony recorded. Grant finally lets us go.
and though we're both desperate to collapse in our beds, Broken and I decide to visit Verva and Van separately. The girl is excited to show off her rejuvenated face to the mystics, especially since Grant, that jerk, didn't say anything. I'm happy for her, though for myself, I shudder to think what's left behind my headdress. Combine that with the weight of an unpaid debt around my neck and of the loss of Nostius. The girl seems to understand, probably sees it in my soul. And so she lends me Gerard that I might find the King's Lodge and, with hope, lighten my load. No luck, not for either of us. After begging me to carve my name and Lord of the Black Flame into what I'm told is a pickaxe handle, the new girl serving drinks finally tells me Van Edwin is out, took off in a hurry less than an hour ago. Broken says the same when I meet her in the street, that Verva and Thomas are absent the guild hall, and that she had to carve her name into half a dozen of those stupid handles that apparently the miners' guild started selling, telling everyone what a great idea it is to purchase a piece of a local hero's recognition. I hope they're not charging too much, though even if they are, it seems the gullible yokels can afford it, so long as South remains prosperous. And for how long will that be? I wonder and answer immediately. For as long as we keep working to make ourselves a little bit brighter. With that in mind, Broken and I start for the vault. There will be time to visit friends once we've prepared for what is to come. I never considered that our friends would visit us. Welcome back! Their joined voices rush to meet us as soon as we're through the black glass doors. It's Virva and Vaughn and Thomas and everyone. Edgar and all the kobolds, the squeaky mystic doorman that Broken doesn't like, that apothecary novice who makes us tea a lot, even that old man from the Golden Anvil who sold us our armor, and a bunch of others whose voices I don't recognize. Congratulations, they say, swarming us with warm hugs and handshakes despite the filthy condition of our clothes. It's as if they don't notice the lingering odor of sweat and miasma, nor the crossbow holes, nor the gruesome stains that must color each of us in splotches of crimson and all-over black-blue. Maybe it's the sweet cinnamon aroma of fresh loaves of date bread, courtesy of Thomas, that keeps their noses occupied. And perhaps the same can be said of their eyes stuck to Muadnite, or to broken, smooth, reconstituted skin. Or maybe, I think, simultaneously trepidatious and emboldened. Maybe they really are just happy that we're alive. It's a short celebration. We eat our dessert and drink tea and tell everyone what happened on the peak at the old King's Keep gatehouse. In response, the party offers gasps and platitudes and a few words of admiration, then it's back to business as usual. The guests depart, all but Verva and Van Edwin, and Edgar hangs around for the discussion as well. How long do you think we have to prepare? she asks. I tell her, I don't know, though I think I've got a plan. But before we talk about that, I speak to Van. There's a debt I'd like to pay. I hand over the mithril cage and King Ogier's blade. Sorry if it's not in perfect condition. Will these be enough to keep vanguard acquisitions afloat? Edwin chuckles and asks me if I'm serious, 
Really, friend? You think I'd rob you of your weapons when a horde of ghouls is threatening my livelihood? Who will I trade with if an army of Hobbs conquers the island? And where could I hide when finally they come for Berg, for my family? And who else will take vengeance for Nostius? He shoves the sword back into my hands. It's yours, friend. Now, let's hear this plan of yours. See if we can't turn a profit. I dream of a road running through the very heart of the mountain, of a hollow below the surface connecting the seat of power to the veins of my ancestors. With blind eyes I see inside those depths their shadowed labyrinth, black beneath the water. A light at the center shines in golden white. Something. Not the eye of Amgin, surely, for it is with the mad stone that I grant myself vision from within the belly of the beast. Thou seest Rotundum, utters a familiar voice, and at once I find myself standing before the embodied old king, or at least what I imagine him to look like, braided hair and beard hanging long as his waist buckle and white as the ashen skin on his face. But his eyes, they're dark, shadowed around the sockets, and the irises themselves appear wrought from iron left to weather the centuries exposed to a storm whence the only light comes in bright, finite sparks, bright as his indigo and cloth of gold garb, gone quicker than the glow of the jewel embedded in his circlet. Darkness falls. No longer can I see the walls of the labyrinth, nor Ogier's visage, nor the Ouroboros swimming above us when... What seest thou? asks the king. You're not really Ogier, are you? I pose to the figure now invisible in the dark. He does not answer, though I can feel him drawing closer from the pressure of the water, though there is no hint of warmth. Who are you? I try. What are you? What do you want? But no luck. Only the muffled sound of soldiers approaching and the taste of miasma poisoning the lake. What did he ask me? What seest thou? I mull over it for a moment. The bitterness, like chili seeds ground between my teeth, it releases a mouthful of heat and agitation. It stings my tongue, cheeks, and sinuses, so that phantom droplets run from destroyed ducts and nostril. Even as I spit out, nothing! The eye of Amgin is gone, taken, torn out of my head by a backstabbing hob, so I can't see anything, nor anyone. I think of Broken's face and that I'll never get to see it smiling and finally free from the curse. Because I'm still just as blind as the day I was born, I mutter, soft and insecure, trampled as the sounds of marching grow louder. That was the wrong answer, a lie, a deception, and now the minions of destruction lurk on my doorstep. Think, troglodyte, think, what do I see? I try, the king, my enemy! and the footfalls surrounding me turn to malicious yipping. Desperate, I start saying anything. A champion, my companion. Domnal in a costume, the wise patriarch. The water turns to residue, then to tendrils of consuming translucent flame. Crossbows loose, but a voice is piercing their twang. Thou knowest not of what thou speaks, squeaks Muad Knight. How many times must thou repeatest before understanding dawns on thee? From Bedlam, 
the spheres separate. From shadow, light. From light cometh shadow. One prima materia from infinite immaterial. And just like that, it becomes obvious. How could I've not seen it? How could I not know to speak the words, Thou spirit enantiodromia? And speaking them, the world reverses. So now I'm standing at the center of the maze, the treasure glowing golden white, waiting for me to take it. I reach out and awaken, blind, eyeless, in a cold sweat inside the vault of the black flame where I'd laid down to rest. When? How long has it been? By the chill, it must be night, though the clamor would suggest otherwise. The clink of glass bottles rings out as one is added to a crate of others. Then there's the hiss of a stoked fire and the roar of water boiling. Then a voice, Edgar's. Careful, woman. That new West End glass is as ill-tempered as it is expensive. Useless, overpaid, bumpkin glass blowers. I can't understand why Kenneth or Otto entertains those zealots. Feed them to the Crown Royals, I say, and bring back competitive prices and quality control, a woman replies. It's Verva, though I almost don't recognize the aggression in her tone. It's as it was half a year ago, blunt and imperious, as it was the day we captured Edgar in the first place. Those heartless bastards entertain nothing. They just don't have the manpower to take back their factories. You probably haven't heard the rumors being locked in the vault every day, but they say the owners have lost control of most the city, that they're holed up in the Crystal Palace, and that between royals taking the south and gremlins seizing the east, they're likely to be overthrown. So, good riddance, I say. They reap what they sow, and I'm certain that anyone with a soul would agree. We'd rather pay a few extra copper pieces if it means that fewer people are slaves or starving. Gremlins aren't people, the doctor sneers, and nobody was starving. Or if they were, it's not our fault that they couldn't manage their purses, because they certainly had enough spare coin to afford my elixir, another whole industry gone the way of the troglodyte. And what way is that, I ask? Edgar clears his throat. You're finally awake, eh? Lord Kanti, answers Virva, demure. How long have I been out? It's not morning already, is it? It's evening now. The sun should be setting within the hour, although... And what about Broken? She's still asleep. Kanti, both of you have been under for more than two whole days. Even after hearing what happened and seeing your injuries firsthand, I can't imagine the suffering you must have experienced. But I'm happy to see that you're awake and healthy. She approaches in quick, short steps, sandals soft on the hard wood. Then suddenly, I'm swathed in cloth folds as the broad sleeves of her robe wrap around me. It lasts a few moments. Virva clings to me like a child to a father, or like a wife to a husband, just before he goes off to war. It's in her embrace I notice that I'm not wearing my headdress, nor my armor, just a shift though I swear I left them on so that no one would see the scars. I hope you don't mind, she says, reading my body language as we separate. But I took it upon myself to clean you two and your clothes while you slept. I grimace, embarrassed, yet I thank her nonetheless and ask, 
Was Grant willing to commission the funds for our golden anvil repairs? Edgar's peg leg clatters a few steps across the cave. Here you are, you damned spoiled trog, he says, tossing a couple bundles nearby my feet. They land with a muffled clank of plates and rivets, as if in answer to my question. And we've readied that other rubbish. Satchels are in a wheelbarrow by the door, next to a new pickaxe like you asked. And we've got nine crown elixir bombs. You're welcome, but there's no need to thank me, really. Then I won't, I think, and order the doctor. Good. Now there's one last thing I need you to do, and you'll need to hurry because there isn't much time. Take Gerard and go into town. Have him carry you if you have to. But whatever you do, don't let the sun set before you make it to the Mystic's Guild Hall. I need you to talk to Thomas and see if he has any of that cinnamon date bread made. I'm starving. Edgar grumbles at first, but it's not long before he gives in once Gerard emerges from the deeper tunnels. Then, after convincing the Revenant that this is an indirect order from Broken, they're both off into the woods, the doctor riding on Gerard's skeletal shoulders. You could have just asked for a moment alone if you are embarrassed, says Virva, once the other two are gone. I could have, but I wasn't lying. I won't be able to transmute on an empty stomach, and without the eye, I don't want to take any unnecessary risks. About that, she asks. But I already know what she's about to say, and preempt her request. No, you're not coming with. This isn't like Glassboro. We don't have a decoy, or surprise, or special weapons this time. But don't worry, Broken isn't coming either. I can't put her in that kind of danger again. Not after... Canti! Virva interjects. I pause, listening to the subtle sounds as she retrieves something from underneath her robe. Whatever it is, she presses it into my hand. A glass amulet, warm from where it lay adjacent to her breast, hanging from a simple cord. I want you to take this. It's yours, after all. The Eye of Kanti, Lord of Fear and of the Black Flame. I wrap the cord around my neck and tuck the amulet inside my shift. I can't believe you still have this. Granted, I've never understood what you saw in me in the first place. It seems such aspects remain invisible to ourselves until someone else sees them in us. As you and Broken have done for me, as she and I do for you now. Virva reaches down and unfurls the converted brigandine from the newly patched yellow linens. By the time Gerard and Edgar return armed with sour loaves, Thomas was sold out of the good stuff. I'm dressed and armored, Ogier's sword on my belt, and that new pickaxe at rest on my shoulder. No pack this time. It would just get in the way, though that leaves me with what room is left to my pockets. Just enough for a single satchel and a bottle of profaned flame. I have Gerard carry the rest while I guide the wheelbarrow through the twisting, winding veins of the old home of the Clan of the Antler, all the while gnawing on my loaf. It's not bad, I suppose. I guess my tastes have changed, though it'd be better if it were toasted with some miasmatic residue, preserves, and cheese. And you let him go? are the first words out of my mouth as soon as Verva lets me in on her and Kanti's conversation. I stand and rub the sleep from my eyes, adding, Without me? And what about Gerard? 
and Muad Knight? How long has it been since he left? And without sharing breakfast, can't that flippity-floppity trog stick to anything? Broken, Verva gasps, and Dr. Edgar laughs in the background, lights a coal gas burner, and fills the vault with the odor of toasting sourdough. I wonder if we have some preserves and focus. I pull myself back from the distraction despite the ogre-sized hunger, growling inside my stomach so loudly that I feel like I have to shout for them to hear, I'm not broken anymore, remember? Or has the fairy blood already worn off? I touch my face to make sure that the skin is still smooth and supple, sensitive, absent splits, cracks, blisters, and scabs. Finding myself safe, I sigh and say, I want to be called Ashlyn from now on. Verva kneels in front of me, smiling, so that I, standing, am almost taller than her. Up close, the shadows under her eyes seem more like bruises, and the wrinkles from her smile more like the serpent's curse. She's tired, exhausted from working for days, preparing profaned flame, her palms dry and scratchy as she presses them to my cheeks and says, I'm sorry. I'll remember to call you by your name from now on, but for the same reason, you shouldn't call Lord Canty a trog. But we had a plan. We were supposed to wait for the miasma to spread, then strike back with a surprise counterattack. I step back from Virva to demonstrate the strength of our tactics with a mock one-two punch followed by cut off the head from the tail with a wall of black and profane flame and pit Gerard against the grumpy old king himself. That was the strategy we agreed on. What changed? I wonder turning away from the homey elements of the vault antechamber, the polished wooden floor and furnishings, hanging oil lamps, shelves, chemistry tools, and work tables. I gazed toward the smooth stone and cavernous darkness, and deeper, past where the kobolds toil under the watchful sockets of my loyal SS. I look into the depths, the winding veins once ossified, yet once again flowing with the red-hot blood of the mountain. He must have seen something in his sleep for him to leave with Gerard and Muadnate without saying anything. Taketh Muadnate, art thou always so blind as thee art loud come the morn? Yawns the sylph, stirring from her perch on my shoulder. I can just see her out of the corner of my eye, moth-winged and antennaed, her body feathered and bright like an iridescent hummingbird's. She yawns long, stretching her colorful wings and limbs. Or art thou truly as vulnerable to deception as I recall said of human girls? I am familiar to thee, not to that burnt one. Taketh me, he cannot. Boys are dumber, I say, tempted to flick the tiny fay from my person, though that would probably break her thin silver bones. So I let her babble on while I stuff my face with the toasted sourdough. Edgar, this tastes kind of funny. I don't think you should cook food with your chemistry tools anymore. Moadnate squeaks, offended. Art thou even listening, or dost thou carest not if thy kith all perish under the shadowed king's mist? The miasma, it's spreading. Art thou deaf as well as dumb and blind? Nay, not thou, but ye. For such is the nature of humankind to fool themselves with stupid rhetoric. And ye have the gall to blame us fair folk 
when it is your own fault that you are so easily gulled, so prone to corruption, too dark to ascend, too heavy to fly. You're wrong about us, I want to tell her, that she doesn't have the eyes to see that her notions of humanity are really upside down, but I don't have time to argue that now. If this part of the plan hasn't changed, our signaler should be on his way, so I ask Verva to help me don the armor that Canty ordered repaired while we slept. He had them sharpen the dragon lance as well, just like he said. I'll need it. A death wand loaded with lead would prove useless. And we still don't know if salt affects the hobs. I ready mine anyway, load it appropriately, affix the bayonet, and line my pockets with satchels of black flame. Verva does the same, while Edgar fetches a couple members of the SS to fight alongside us, armed with their rusty steel partisans. More useless weapons. Maybe they can hold a hob down, like Grant did the Merigold Ogre, I tell myself. But I can't shake the feeling that we aren't prepared. If only Uncle Gnostius were here. He could transmute some of this stuff into silver. Footfalls sound from without the black glass doors. Heavy steps and clumsy, as if the runner's boots are too big and his motion out of sorts with the intentions of his body. It can't be, I think, holding myself back from calling out the alchemist's name. Then the squeaky voice carries through the glass, and I'm glad I didn't embarrass myself in front of Edgar and Muad. They'd never let me live it down, mistaking Kayleen for someone whose appearance is impossible. Though another part of my heart wants me to believe that by saying his name aloud, it could really become the apothecary and not the annoying doorman calling. It's in the town! You have to hurry! We follow the river east, then north, where it forks into a canal running south through the township center. Our original hope was to hold the battle where housing is sparsest north of the jailhouse. But according to Kayleen, we're to join with Grant at the fallback point. That's the market square, which means the miasmas already consumed a few houses. We see them as we enter town, doors flung open and left ajar, abandoned. No broken windows or blood or crossbow bolts, just an acidic purple cloud so thick that fairy wings can hardly hold a space large enough for me, Verva, Muad, the doorman, and SS deputies, brawns and strongs. We left Pegleg Edgar behind because he's a coward, so it's just the six of us plus Grant and his new constabulary, wherever they are. Kayleen shouts out to them as we pass from under the blanket gas and into the pallor of an immense full moon. By the old king's grace, his voice carries over merchant stalls and wagons. It echoes off shop fronts, once his own, then someone else's. Law and order, the second voice replies, followed by the squeal of twenty travel lanterns' shutters pried open, yawning blindingly bright into our eyes, adjusted for the dark. It stops us in our tracks, that's probably the point, and if it is, the constabulary is certainly well practiced. Grant doesn't miss a beat, giving his commands. What are you doing? Don't just stand there. Get behind the line. The rest of you. Lanterns closed. Where's Canty? He asks, among a flurry of questions. Virva explains the situation as quickly as she can, to the constable's chagrin. He mutters, confused. But that wasn't part of our plan though it's impossible to tell just how badly he's taking the news. 
His face is cloaked in shadow that my eyes can't quite penetrate other than to see the whites of his eyes assessing the various states of his men. Most are leaned over stalls, while others lay prone beneath wagon wheels, and others still kneel behind stockpiles of goods. But no matter their position, every wand and every lantern shutter is trained on the same miasma-filled street. A single word, and anything northward of the market will be shot to shreds in an instant, if the enemy were human. Hopefully, Grant was smart enough to load their weapons with salt. If that'll even work against the Hobbs. I fear that it won't. I'm afraid that we'll never even see the enemy coming. That the miasma will flood the whole town, and that everybody who doesn't get killed in a rain of quarrels will be dissolved by the fog. I'm afraid for us, for Roslyn and her mother, for Van and all the shopkeepers, for the mystics and the coal miners and the novices at the Apothecary's Guild, even for people like Domnall and Edgar. I imagine them choking, gasping, weeping tears of viscous miasma as they become as I was, blistered and raw, vulnerable to exposure, then dead from it, then nothing at all. The thought seizes inside my chest as a tightness, just like when that gremlin got shot. It hurts inside my heart. I don't want to be here anymore. I... My mind freezes, startled as a hand lands tentatively on my shoulder, where only layers of linen lay between the intended warmth of skin on skin. Slowly, my mind thaws, and the tightness lessens. The hand, its virva, I know without looking, reaching out to comfort me in a way she couldn't do until today, by touch, communication without words, pressure without pain that conveys love, affection, and acceptance. It's strange how suddenly calm I've become from a gesture so small, how good it makes me feel, too good to be real, too good for me to deserve it. Because I don't deserve to feel this way, because without the fey blood I wouldn't, and I won't anymore once it wears off. I pull away from Virva. I'm sorry, does it hurt? I should have put bandages on you, but I thought, she says at once. I shake my head, smile, and interrupt. No, it doesn't hurt, it's just... Grant hisses for us to quiet down. All ears and eyes stay open toward the north. But boss, starts one of the deputies. It's Mr. PSO, whispering. The fog ain't moved an inch since we got here. What if they's going round the sides for a sneak attack? Then we'd see the miasma accrue west or eastward. Wherever there are hobs, the mist is sure to follow. But what if they ain't all hobs? The wooden thwack of a wand pommel rings the deputy's skull like a broken bell. Does anyone else wish to question my command? The constable asks the rest of his men. Then after a moment of silence, no one? So I am to understand there won't be any further insubordination? Because as marshal, I can assign you to a different post if this one is proving too stringent. Really? cracks the voice of a young man laying prone behind a wagon wheel. Grant plants a foot on the center of his back and cocks the hammer of his wheel wand, saying, Really, you can join the warden in the vault as a member of Ashlyn's SS. He presses the muzzle against the back of the deputy's head. I'll handle the paperwork. All you have to do is... Bronze. Strongs. My mind projects on its own a sudden rush of animus to the skeleton souls, just like in Glassboro.
cut his hands off, it commands, and in the dark, no one will notice the rusty partisans readied overhead. In a split second, they'll fall. Their dull blades will sever skin and tendons, the impact will break bones. And finally, despite him ignoring my tips and warnings, despite that I've been the one to save him on a number of occasions, even though he'll never admit it, finally, now he'll realize that he should have listened to me all along. Burgeoning are the words like arrowroot, quicker than I can think, they chant. Cut off his hands, his feet, his manhood. Make him the same as the fey cursed he despises. But none of that happens. Instead, it's Virva who intervenes so fast that the members of the SS don't even have time to raise their weapons. She darts between the man and the boy, a shadow between shadows. Her hands become enveloped in the silhouette of Grant's death wand. Reflexively, he jerks the trigger. There's a click, then a soft thud, then nothing for a while. Just Grant and Verva, staring at one another, and the rest of us staring at them, speechless, scared, hardly breathing the air so thick with the tension between them. When this is over, Verva breaks the silence. I'm going to have a long discussion with the rest of the Council about your position as Marshal. She peels her hand from betwixt the constable's wheel and hammer, glares into his night-shadowed face. For it has become apparent that you are no longer fit to serve your station, like the old king himself, corrupted. Mordnight seconds that opinion, though nobody hears her. So transfixed are they, as Grant aims at Virva's heart, uttering treason, and without hesitation he fires nothing but the metal clink of a wand hammer against an empty nub. It makes me shudder, though not as much as when he repeats the action five more times before realizing he's been disarmed. Impressive, the sylph whispers, watching six little brass caps glinting as they tumble from the mystic's palm. She would have made a great kith to use fair ones. If only we yet reigned the years, she remained bright. Shut up, the constable curses. Mr. P.S.O. stammers. But boss, I think... Grant cracks him again, this time knocking him unconscious with the barrel. I said, shut up! What part of your orders don't you understand? I am marshal. I am constable. When we are at war, it is me that you obey. I am the law, and in the name of the old king I say, shoot that woman for her acts of treason. No one moves. No one except the fairy, fluttering and giggling into my ear. Seest thou? I told thee of human nature, black and gullible, and so very prone to tyranny and corruption. No, I disagree, and level my death wand at the constable's chest. Salt shot through his officer's greatcoat shouldn't kill him, I think. Mostly that's just Grant. Probably because he lost his mom when he was young and had to become his dad before he was ready. It's sad to think, but it's happy too, that Canty and me could have ended up just like him. We had a plan and everything. Tunnels we'd found that span underneath Village South, that we had dug closer to the surface, and there intended to plant satchels of black flame in waiting for the day of ultimate vengeance. We would sow together a great firestorm so that nothing would remain but the ashes of those who left us forlorn. Only, 
we made friends first, even out of our enemies. I try to look Grant in the eyes. He's not totally bad. Canty wouldn't want me to shoot him if I didn't have to, just like what happened with Dermot, but I can't find any light in the constable's shadowed face. There is only darkness there now. His eyes are closed, and whether that means insight or blindness, I can't tell, so I lower my weapon and say to him, I know that good and bad are hard to understand. Sometimes good people do bad things, and sometimes bad people shouldn't be shot for being bad, even if the law says they should, and it's because... I pause, unsure what to say. Honestly, I don't really understand the reason myself, and it doesn't matter anyway. The thought's gone, crushed under the sudden simultaneous cocking of wand hammers, the simultaneous fall of fingers on lamp shutters, frozen with friction against those little metal plates, awaiting their command to open fire into the miasma where the scratch of clawed feet reaches us more than ten yards away. Grant's eyes open and turn their attention toward the miasmatic veil. Hold your fire, he whispers, loading new brass caps onto the back of his deathwand wheel. They don't know we're here. Listen, and we all go quiet. Some of us even hold our breath as to hear the cadence and caution of the enemy's feet, slow and uncertain till they stop completely at the edge of the fog. Something's gone wrong. Not for us, but for them. It becomes more and more obvious the longer we wait. They don't want to leave the miasma. It's as if they expected it to have spread further than it has. Ashlyn, is this your fairy's doing? Nay. Even mine heirs cannot withstand such a tide, Muad responds, not bothering to quiet her tiny voice. She must not realize how far her squeaks can carry. She doesn't even take cover, just flutters mid-air between me and the constable, where the ghoul's keen ears and noses sense her silver blood. By the time we hear the twang, it's too late to react. The shadow of a shaft whirs past faster than we can turn our heads, to see the sylph snatched mid-flight and pinned like a screaming ornament on the wagon behind us. Ready lanterns, Grant hisses, and every head snaps to the northern front expecting deluge waves of Hobbs mid-charge. But it's only one vicious, hulking monster who's slipped from behind the curtain, sniffing the air for its familiar smells. Chaka yips. Miasmatic slaver foams from his unmuzzled mouth Yet curiously, he dares not respond to Muadnate's shrieks, nor to the tasty prospects of Strong's and Bronze's bones. It's as though he's a totally different hob from the ravenous ghoul whom I watched devour trolls and kobolds with abandon. There were no second thoughts before, not even initial considerations, but now he's so cautious. His fiery eyes flit from the grounds, the carts, the stalls, the wagons, the inns, the houses, then last to us, as if we're an afterthought. That is until the screams start from the south. Chaka's ears perk up, and it's as if he's forgotten all about whatever it was that held him back, as if he's forgotten the houses, the stalls, and the grounds. Now we have his attention. Now he yips and he howls, meanwhile the screams from the south are growing wilder. Human screams, but there's something else. Three of you, reverse position and cover our flank, 
The rest hold your fire until I give my command, orders Grant. But his men aren't having it. You can't be serious, one of them says, by the Patriarch, Constable. We need to get our hides right out of this market before the axe comes. Before the deputy can finish, a wand blast bellows somewhere in the distance, yet close enough to set off a cascade. At least it's not my fault this time. The young man under the wheel panics, fires prematurely. Then suddenly the whole constabulary is shooting blind into the night, their lantern plan forgotten. Grant's furious commands drowned like an unwanted puppy in a torrent of smoke and tumult. It's the first crash of the first wave of the storm, and in its wake, the devastation has transmogrified the landscape. No more stalls, no more streets, no more townships south to see or hear, but for vague black shapes, through grey clouds of sulfuric smoke as impenetrable as the ringing in my ears. I don't hear the twang, nor do I see the quarrels, just a couple of prickly shadows tumbling to the ground where, next thing I know, I am on the ground looking up at Virva on top of me, saying something that I can't make out through the ringing. I can tell she's scared though, because I'm scared too. This is just like the royals and the trolls and the gatehouse all rolled together, only now there is nowhere to run and no one to save us. Where are you? I think for just a moment that maybe if I pray hard enough that Canty will hear me and come to our rescue just like he did before. But it's no good. No matter how intensely I think his name, it's only me and Virva. The sound of her voice begins to break through. Ashlyn, Ashlyn, can you hear me? We need to move before the miasma is on top of us. She looks up and to the northward street, then back to me. Are you ready? We'll go after the next volley. Just stay low and... A flurry of bolts pepper overhead like the patter of raindrops. A couple wand shots let off. Grant curses and the fairy screams. Virva pulls me to my feet and cries out, Now! Wait, I say, and order SS Bronze and Strongs to grab Muad off the side of the wagon. Please, Ashlyn, we don't have time. If they charge... Then I'll have let Muad Knight die after she saved us. Twice! Once on the riverbank and again in the forest. I owe the Fae this much, even if she is kind of annoying. I'd want someone to do the same for me. So we wait the extra several seconds while the skeletons struggle to secure the sylph. It feels like an eternity, but eventually they pry the whole bolt and fairy from the wagon wall. All right, follow me! I start onto the market street fleeing south for better ground. We could hold them off if we could make it to the vault, with the rest of the SS and our stockpile of black flame. But we don't make it that far. Waiting for us in the middle of the street is a beast, like I've only read about in the legends of Gerard. In the light of the full moon, its milk-white eyes don't so much as shine as burn with the feelings of an unfettered soul as do its great fangs and long, hooked, almost human fingers. And it's not just its hands, but the whole creature that's hunched and crooked and covered in hair as grey as granite. I wouldn't recognize him if it weren't for the way he lurches forward, heavy on his haunches, as if his naked feet were burdened by too big a pair of unlaced boots. Just like Nostius, the trolls curse. Now we know what it is. To revealeth the truest nature of man. 
I'm sure Moadnait would say upon seeing our transmogrified friend if she weren't a screaming sylph kebab. And she'd be wrong again, I think, calling out, so happy to discover that he's still alive. Uncle Nostius, Verva snatches me back, just as the apothecary's teeth snap shut where I was a second ago. Then I notice the blood matting the fur around his mouth and down his neck, from his wrists to his fingertips, hooked claws dripping as if they'd been dipped into buckets of blood. But I know better. They were human bodies into which those inhuman hands plunged, violent and quietus, claws and fangs, outgrowths of bone like those in the marigold ogre's hands, or like the kobolds used to murder our junior guildmate. A scratch could mean death. For me, for Virva, for my friends who might already be dead, for all I know. That could be Roslyn's blood, or her mother's, or the tailor's, the cordwainers, the butchers, any or all of the coal miners who we tried so hard to save from Gaston and Edgar's and Billard's monster. And it's on our companion's hands, our friend's, Uncle Nostius's. I can't bring myself to give the command, to aim my weapon at him. Then that idiot Kyleen comes running from behind the stalls with a bloody crossbow bolt in a dagger grip as he rushes straight for the wolfman's jaws, screaming my old name. Save him, I might say, but isn't that too vague, too late? Now I've hesitated, there's no more time to think or speak anything articulate, so I extend my emotions instead, feelings associated with memories of Maddock a mere moment from murdering Canty of the dragon lance flying, and of Gerard rushing in to pin the traitor's possessed body in place. Emotions become motion. In an act of simultaneous replication, Deputy Strong's partisan plunges dead center inside Gnostius's transmogrified chest, and not a second before he would have torn off Kayleen's head, yet the idiot doesn't even realize he's been rescued. He lunges, his eyes probably shut, with a big, wild, overhead thrust into the wolfman's shoulder, all the while shouting for me to run, that he'll hold the monster off, despite the fact Strong's is already bracing the shaft. But one skeleton won't be enough. Bronze, I will the second skeleton to join his fellow, hoping he'll get there before the apothecary recovers, turns his head, and bites Kayleen's off. We've got less than a second. Bronze, I shout aloud, yet there's no answer. No skeleton, no partisan. My heart drops. Then, in the same second, it jumps into my mouth as Nostius howls in long, bestial anguish. From the shoulder down where Kylian's quarrel entered, the fur turns white and withers. The whole arm dwindles, becomes human again, then shrivels further until nothing is left but a bloodless husk. Like dead leaves, it crumbles and blows away with the wind in a puff of miasmatic dust. Our half-second passes. Nostius turns to run, dragging the doorman and Strongs along in his escape. So I raise my death wand and aim at the legs. I don't need to be afraid of killing him with salt. He's no hob after all. He's human. Kayleen's blood-soaked, quietus bolt proves it. Though I wonder, was it his own murderous possession that imbued the blood, or was it the ghouls who shot it? Wait. What am I doing? I don't have time to think about this. I cock the hammer, line my sights, close one eye, even though in training, Bradworth told me not to. 
About the trigger, however, I follow his advice and only wrap it with my finger when I'm ready to fire a blast at the backs of the apothecary's knees. This is my last chance. He's almost too far for salt shot to reach. I'm sorry, Uncle Nostius. If it stays broken, we'll buy you a peg leg like we did Dr. Edgar, I promise myself, so that my finger will listen when I tell it to squeeze. But then, mid-self-convincing, I feel that familiar burn at the back of my sinuses, so faint that it's pleasant, like the scent of spicy tea. Chaka. Flashbacks of our last encounter on the buttress bridge flood my lung and force out the air in a sudden, sharp, soundless exhalation. I spin on my heels, and there he is, the looming terror crunching Bronze's skull between slavering jaws. The rest of the skeleton dangles aloft in the ghoul's claws, limbs flailing like a dying spider's. Partisan dropped, Muad clutched tight by the bone's seizuring hand, screaming. In another second, Chaka will put an end to that. He wants to eat the Fey next, so says his gaping maw, struggling to track the SS deputy's random movements. This is my opportunity. I don't even have to aim at this range, just point and pull the trigger and fill my old friend's mouth with salt. My fear thaws, the wand blasts, the hob's head jerks back, and he drops Deputy Bronze, but it's not enough to stop him. Chaka catches his footing after a couple stagger steps, then lowers his head and growls through shattered teeth. His eyes burn like stoked coals with a desire to consume, to destroy, a foreign will. Then I don't have a choice, I think, readying a bayonet thrust for the Hob's imminent rush. Then it flashes between us, Virva Zathame, hilt over blade, the knife whirls like a ring of moonlight through the black night air. It shines unmistakably the bright of polished silver, and then it sputters as fast as it appears. With all the speed and focus of instinctive fear, Chaka knocks it from the air, and therefore fails to notice the cloud of powder surrounding him. Nor does he react to the sound of the striker, only to Virva's breath of flame. But by then, it's too late. The powder ignites in translucent blue tendrils that catch the ghoul's fur, trapping him inside a smoldering prison. Ashlyn, now! Virva shouts, in a tone imperious so I won't hesitate to stake our old hob in the heart. It must be hard for her to say, because I feel my own heart break as the command compels my hand to the butt end of my death wand. I lunge into the fray, look away, and thrust but I can't escape feeling the bayonet pass into Chaka's chest, scraping ribs, piercing his heart, his lung, and the muscles covering them. Then again, as I yank the blade out, I feel it. The wounds spurting, not blood, but streaks of pale white flames while his spirit bleeds. His body shrinks and his eyes lose their ravenous glow. He yips once more the lovable hob, but scorched and suffering, clutching at the hole I left in his chest and staring at me as if he's asking, why? I drop my death wand on the ground, cover my mouth, and whisper into my hands, I'm sorry. I say it again, and again, each time a little louder, a little more obscured by the tears, until I'm bawling. I'm sorry! I didn't want to! I didn't want this to happen! Chaka! The ghoul collapses on his claws and knees, coughing, but too weak to yip, yet he cranes his neck when I call him, 
His big, round, amber-brown eyes look straight into mine. He struggles to stand. I cry out to him, Stop it! You're hurting yourself! But he won't listen. He just keeps struggling until I can't bear to look. I turn to Virva and shove two fistfuls of her robe under my headdress. But still they won't stop. Not my tears, not Chaka, even as the mystic wraps her arms around me. The weeping just gets worse, no matter how many times she says, It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Then why does it hurt so much? I sob, doubtful she can understand me any better than I understand her. Either way, I never receive an answer. A wand blasts from around the corner of the market stalls. I don't see it fired, but I feel Verva's body jerk in shock at the impact a split second before the thunder rolls. What she sees, she tries to keep me from seeing, but by then, I've already taken it in. Chaka shot dead, his head burst open. That wasn't salt. I raise my eyes and find Grant approaching with a train of men, his wheel-wand smoking. I think, what does it matter? He would have died eventually. And wasn't he suffering? Isn't this better? A sudden end? I ask myself all these questions, yet my heart is not satisfied. It conspires with my mouth to make reason into rage, to turn my tongue into a scourge lashing whatever is available. The constable, Grant, that's stupid. Why didn't you tell us you had silver bullets the whole time? If I'd have known it would have been over with the first shot, we wouldn't have had to burn him. It wouldn't have hurt so much. Why didn't you tell us? Grant closes the distance marching double time, never slowing or stopping as he answers. All you need to know, citizen, is that we're retreating to more advantageous ground. Now come along, he says, passing by with his deputies. So I grab the sleeve of his greatcoat and halt the whole constabulary right in their tracks. What did you call me? Citizen. It burns even just repeating the word, but I'm sick of being dismissed. Yanking as hard as my rejuvenated hand can, I whip the constable around and tell him in front of his men, Listen up! My name is Ashlyn, and you'll address me as such, as Master Pyromancer and as Seer of the Black Flame. And that, I point to the ghoul's dissipating corpse and try not to cry, that was Chaka, and he died in a lot of pain because you won't communicate what's happening. A pair of small, dexterous hands drift gently to my shoulders. It's too late to fight about this now, Virva whispers. Then her voice turns firm. We have to get you somewhere safe. No, I scream. No amount of suggestion will convince me to let go of the constable's sleeve. Not until he answers. Why didn't you tell us? Grant's eyes never move from the mystic's fingers as he commands his men to fall into firing lines facing north in two rows of six. Fire at will, as soon as you see so much as a shadow of a hob. Then to me, he admits, I made a unilateral decision and commandeered all the silver from the anvil jewelers. I told them it didn't matter if they were heirlooms or that the pieces didn't belong to them because it was martial law and... But it wasn't martial law, was it? You lied! It was necessary to ensure that the township remained secure and there was only enough silver for a few dozen rounds. Based on how Canty was certain to react, it only made sense to keep this information to myself. 
He glances northward for the first time since speaking, and for just a second, I join him squinting into the dark. The miasma still hasn't advanced, and it seems as though they've ceased their volleys of quarrels. You'd think this would calm the constable down, but instead, it has the opposite effect. His lips twist into a snarl under the moonlight, but his brow remains shadowed. Pick up your fairy, he says. We'll need it if they manage to surround us. So now he thinks they could circle around, blurts out Mr. PSO, awake. What were those knocks on my noggin for, then? We ignore him. I collect Muad and tuck her into one of Virva's dozen pockets. Not because Grant ordered it, I let him know. She won't be helping anyone with anything until we can safely remove the bolt. More like remove her from the bolt, really. Poor thing. First her, then Chaka, and Nostius lost his arm. Canty's face got burned off. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Virva's words echo, as does my unanswered question. Then why does it hurt so much? I grab my death wand and walk over to the rose. Ahead of us is nothing but darkness, spent quarrels, and a wall of miasma. I point out to the constable. You still haven't said why they stopped shooting. I don't know, so I am assuming the worst. And what is that? I ask. He stares north for a moment, then utters, Reinforcements, everyone, hold your fire. Too slow. The men are already executing their initial orders, shrouding the quarrel-littered space with salt shot and smoke. Wands flash like lightning in a storm, each blast chased by thunder, and between the claps, what is that? It's like the ringing that sounds out from the golden anvil smitheries, a dozen hammers drumming on solid blocks of iron. Then the death wands go quiet. We wait, blind and deaf, for the smoke to dissipate for the cessation of those echoes in our ears, till we hear Grant screaming, Fall back! as the lead row is stabbed by crude, rusty, wrought iron spearheads. The rear row scatters, and, for their cowardice, receive quarrels in their backs, as well as spears through their guts, for those unfortunate enough not to collapse when shot. There's only a few who don't, including myself, only... I'm no coward. The bolt hits dead center my chest, the leaf-shaped spear blade a little below that. In either case, their soft iron points blunt against the harder steel inside my brigandine. The bolt shaft breaks, and the spearhead bends, with just enough force left to shove me back a few steps out of reach. They're strong for being so small. Ogier's army of ghouls emerges through the wand, smoke-hefting iron-faced shields and spears, twice the height of their little hob bodies. It explains why the salt shot didn't work. They march, round shields layered the same as the plates in my armor, like an iron thorn hedge growing over the whole market, end to end, more ranks deep than I can see. I turn to Virva. We can go now. Halt! The constable orders as if to his own underlings, leveling his weapon, deepening his voice. In the name of the old king's law, or by my power as marshal, I'll see you all executed as criminals of war. Of course, the army creeps onward. Grant opens fire, and all five silver balls flatten against iron. In the name of the old king, 
he repeats himself, cocking and dropping his wand hammer over and over onto exhausted brass caps. Verva takes my hand, glances a moment at the constable before making her decision. Let's go! She chooses to abandon South's marshal to his futile power struggle. Leave him, she says when I look back. He deserves his fate. I can't debate that. Not after Chaka and the Fey cursed and how badly he used to talk about us. About me and Kanti. It's strange to think that for a time, we really became friends. Yet he helped us out so much. Saved us. I stop, and Verva insists. Let him go. It's no use. And even if it was, he's just as bad as the monsters in charge of Marigold and Glassborough. Maybe so, but I'm not. I give Grant one shot and tell him, We're leaving, you idiot! We'll hold them off at the vault with the rest of the SS! But he just stands there, clicking his empty wand, murmuring, In the name of the old king. Virva was right. At least I tried, I think, and give in to her leading me away. We start south and west, but never make it more than a few steps into the darkness, when an arc of light tears apart the sky. Lightning followed by a woman's shrill, then a voice somehow simultaneously sonorous and serene speaks, but a single syllable, and the ranks of ghoulish soldiers snap to a stop. Halt, he says, then once we've turned around, kneel, lest I be forced to squander such talent. The old king, Grant mutters, awe-stricken. He drops his weapon, falls to his hands and knees, bows down and looks up. He does this repeatedly, like a starry-eyed child who can't believe what he's seeing. Old King Ogier, embodied in his own ancient flesh, shorter than I remember, and skinnier looking in ragged indigo silks. Though his face remains the same pallor of ashwood, wrinkled and brittle as his wiry beard is long, as his hair is thin tucked under a new, crudely wrought iron ring wrapped around his forehead. Township South bows before your authority. Grant says that, but it's really just him and the army on their knees. Virva and I stand, as does Shaquar, beside the old king as a captive, stripped bare save for a set of rusty shackles around her wrists and ankles, her hair thrown forward to hide her nakedness. A ghoul behind her takes notice and, wielding a troll leather whip, lashes the shield maiden's exposed back till she submits. The hollow husk of old Ogier grimaces, Choose ye to suffer then, as doth this maiden. Nay, as does all of man choose while failing to understand the grand purpose of their limited position, just as man fails to understand the purpose of mine. He points to his eye on his right side and explains, I am wisdom incarnate the living memory of what was, and the sole visionary of what is to be. You, my subjects, lack the foresight necessary to order your fates. This is why the right to rule is mine, for only I possess the power to see. The Eye of Amgeen. I recognize the pinprick of light shining through its smoked glass casing, Domnall's design, as was the idea to wedge it inside the eye socket, eyes on the inside, stolen. You're nothing but a thief and a senile old man, I reply to his tirade, stalling for time, stealing glances at the deputies' bodies beneath the soldiers' feet. I know somebody plenty less blind than you. Truly? The king chuckles like a troll, 
like grit and gravel. And of whom speakest thou? Surely not that troglodyte from under the keep. His name is Kanti, Lord of Fear, and of the Black Flame, Master Pyromancer, and Warden of Township South. And yeah, he'd make a better king than you. Grant flies to his feet and seethes the word, treason, like a spit adder, as if it were an incantation conjuring the poison foam frothing at his lips. Vile, treacherous, unforgivable treason. Such talk constitutes open rebellion. It is no better than the Union Church. No, no, it's worse. It's worse than the criminal council in Glassborough. It is an act of war. Such treason and defiance. He turns again toward Ogier, kneels, and begs him, Please, your authority, order me responsible for apprehending these insurgents. I swear on my honor, I will not fail you. The old king advances, comes as close as his front line of ghouls, but no further, as if he's scared to venture beyond that which he's already conquered. A weakness I wish I knew how to exploit. Attack him with something he's never seen before, but all I have at my disposal are the resurrection spell, the dragon lance, and a satchel of black flame. As soon as I move or try to start an incantation, he'll have his taskmaster flog Shalquar, and then it's over. If only my wand was loaded, but it's not, so I look to Virva hoping she's got something up her sleeve, yet I find her petrified, eyes wide with dread. Stand, commands the king, and Grant obeys, then starts to shake as Ogier's hand envelops his shoulder. Thou swore just now thou would serve without fail. Yes, your authority. If you give me the chance, I'll... Fool. Thou would be crushed in single combat with this sickly girl. Even if lent a dozen null soldiers, still would she slayeth thee. For her soul hath swollen pregnant from proximity with the eye, and her mind profaned by lawless notions. Such is the inevitable result of failing to control thy women and children as thou hast. They become willful parasites siphoning power from man, and all that he hath instituted, until at last his arms are feeble, and the walls too much to bear. Ogier removes his hand from the constable's padded greatcoat shoulders, and turns his gaze toward Virva and myself. Nay, Marshal, thou art too weak to serve that way, unless... Anything, your authority, I'll do anything for the honor of serving your order. The old king grins, and the mask slips. There's a reason he's doing this, I realize. There is something he wants, something preventing him from just sending in his ghouls. But what? What is it? I think, squinting through the darkness at his pale, wrinkled body, at his dim, ossified soul. It's harder to see without a crown cap vision, but it's like a bowl carved from salt, dry, cracked, and empty. No shadow, no inner doorway to the darkness without, no connection to the eye, nor the spirits, nor himself. I shout, Grant, you dummy, that's not the old king, it's just a hollow husk. Chains clink. Shalquar looks up through her veil of hair. Seest thou it as well? She says, before being whipped into silence. Yet the maiden continues in spite of her punishment. His vacant soul shunned of darkness. Methinks it incestuous, and he a wayward son, whom mistaketh himself wise, and thus seeketh union, 
with the aspect of his matron. She struck again, grunts, but keeps from letting her scream conjure another column of divine wrath. Instead, she finishes in a small voice with a short prayer. From darkness, light. From light, returnest them to darkness, thou divine son. Woman's nonsense, Ogier asserts. Mere babbly emergent from self-loathing of their own vanity and vacuousness. Yes, Grant says. I've seen this myself in their constant questioning of my authority, all the while bowing mindlessly to that degenerate trog. He glares at us and spits. What was it you said to me? That I am no longer fit to serve my station? That you will have a long talk with your council of impotence? As if they have the power to remove me by themselves. To the king's corpse, he begs, command me your authority. Tell me what it is I must do to be of use. Simple, my supplicant. Close thine eyes and relinquish control. Imagine thyself a son, not of man and woman, but of Sealand herself, and of thy ruler. Sayest the words, I am become king as part of the whole. They recite the incantation together. One will, one wisdom, one body and soul. Now's my chance. I whisper a spell that I've never seen before, praying deep down that neither has OGA. From constitution, crystallization, ossification, petrified marrow, and coagulated blood. From dust, life. From life to dust returneth the primordial rotundum. Uroboros! Come! The king and I invoke simultaneously as we both utter the words, Dissolve the spheres! Grant disappears, his greatcoat suddenly vacant, hanging mid-air a moment in a whirl of light and black-striped shadows. Then, Ogier inhales great gales into his nostrils, and the floating clothes fall in a pile around empty boots, coat, trousers, holster, and wheel wand. The sacrifice amplifies the eye's pinprick of light, bright as a revenance. A hollow husk no more, the old king's corpse sheds itself of wrinkles, of pallor, of hoar. Its muscles thicken like twisted ropes under taut pink skin and downy blonde. Yes, he bellows, his army yipping. I am returned. I am the king. Sea land is mine once more, as shall becometh the continent, as shall becometh the world. Bow, supplicants, kneel now or be destroyed, he says with perfect confidence. Then his bright blue eye goes wide as he realizes that while he was busy gloating, I'd been reciting an incantation of my own. Amgeen, I beseech the spirit. Dissolution. Ogier's face contorts from fear to confusion, then again to fear for the strange and unknown. My shield, and bring me the death engine, quickly, he orders, staggering backward, tripping over ranks of ghouls just in time to avoid the eruption of the dead deputies' bodies, converted to component parts, to kindling for a reversal of being itself. Like a red miasma, it consumes the crude spears and shields and crossbows, the bolts littering the ground, the topsoil and the earth below that, the still bones of SS bronze, Chaka's charred corpse, then finally five ranks of living hobs begin dissolving as well. So they scatter, lacking the independent will to exist when faced with chaos incarnated in the rusty mist. It swirls and elevates, takes the shape of the spirit Ouroboros, and lights the night sky in shades of fire.
And as above, so below does the exposed bedrock glow orange and yellow like hot coals. My shield, I said, stammers Ogier. What is that? Chalquar's answer comes unexpected. The divine sun, she says, pointing as much as her shackles will allow toward an apparition descending from the fiery clouds. He hath answered my prayer. She looks to Ogier, her hair falling away from her face. He hath come to grant thee thy coveted maternal reunion, to returneth thee to that very abyss to which thou banished Malzil, my champion. Now he awaiteth thee, for thou art vanquished. Smite her! The old king screams to his taskmaster. Smite her now, before the girl destroyeth us all! And so the ghoul unfurls his whip over and over. Blood spatters from the shield maiden's naked back as she groans, lips closed. I wish I could help her. I try begging the descending apparition, but it doesn't seem to hear, or else it doesn't care. It's difficult to tell by only a silhouette of pearl-white fire. That is, until it touches the molten ground and reaches a hand down, as if it's about to pull something out. Then it does. An inferno of translucent flames rises from the earth like a hand grasping onto the Ouroboros above. It pulls itself into the sky and vanishes in one great flash of light as does the apparition. Left behind gapes a hole six men wide, separating me and Verva from the king. Now's our chance to run, but there's no way I'm missing this. They climb out from a tunnel below south, Gerard the Giant Slayer and the Lord of the Black Flame, Kanti. How are you holding up, kid? He asks, without looking, not that he could. The only eye left to him is Virva's amulet, dangling around his neck. It and the head of the pickaxe hefted on his shoulder, glimmer in the moonlight, especially against the rest of his clothes soaked black with gore. Kanti plants the pick in the dirt in front of him, draws his sword, pulls a satchel from his pocket. Ogier chuckles. All that bluster for a dead rebel and a troglodyte. A fool's hope, though this doth explain how my plan runneth afoul. And I admit, I am impressed. To slay an hundred gnolls by thyself inside such narrow tunnels must needs uncommon power. A hundred gnolls? Narrow tunnels? That explains the army's trepidatious assault. They thought they'd find victory in the veins under the township, packing them with ghouls, drowning south in miasma. But what they found instead was glass shrapnel, crown cap gas, an angry revenant, and a mithril edge in the hands of a hero. But how did he find us? Kanti responds, I had help from the spirits, from Gerard here, and from your old soul. You crushed his hopes when you stole the eye and left him behind. A man stealeth not what belongeth to him, but reclaimeth it. And be it true that my former spirit lamenteth, then I was right to abandon him, he who hath become so blind and weak. Ye together, however, would make great champions in mine army. Kneel, and if thy constable spake truly of thee, seest thine women kneel, and I shall take them as well. I don't know what Grant told you, but there's no way in hell either of these ladies are going to bow down, no matter what I do. Isn't that right? Virva, Ashlyn, by the way, where is our insufferable lawman? Don't tell me he was killed by ghouls. Ogier ate him, I shout out, leaving out the part about Grant turning coat. 
and he's holding Shalquar prisoner, and he turned Nostius into a wolf. That's not entirely true, but I don't have time to explain, so I continue. And Chaka too! It's Ogier's fault we had to shoot him, and now he's going to use the Kingmaker against you. This guy doesn't do anything original! Canty chuckles under his bloody broken headdress, says to the embodied king, What was it you told me? It's not stealing if I'm taking it back. Gerard, are you ready to put this tyrant down again? The Revenant's jaw cracks ajar, and Miasma amasses about his teeth-lit crimson as the shafts of light from his eyes turn from pale white to the red of revenge. And the groan that comes out is like a wolf's baleful howl, and a man's harrowed moan rolled together in pitch, waiting for a spark. It's all that it would take to start the firestorm, though the enemy doesn't need an open flame to fire the stolen weapon now slung over his shoulder. It rests against his right hip and opposite it, Gripped in his left hand is the shield he summoned earlier. Huge round, framed with crystal amber, faced on one half with boiled face skin. Troll by the look of it. The other half covered in mirror glass, only it's more like ice. Just looking upon it fills my heart with cold and sadness. But Gerard has no heart, and Canty has no eyes. Whatever magic belongs to the shield is lost on South's champions. I wonder if Ogier realizes, or if he can even see beyond the surface, beyond the cover of the magnum opus, to the riddle capture of the Alcahest. What a waste, he mutters. Soldiers, slay them to the very last. Leave not a rebel standing. Be without mercy, for it is they who have chosen disobedience and death. Drumming their shields, the ghouls yip, stamp their heels, and replace the ranks consumed by the Ouroboros. They advance as quickly as they can, but even at their fastest, the machinations of war must move slowly to maintain their rigid formations. Plenty of time for Kanti to complete his transmutation. Alcahest, he finishes, and from the tip of Ogier's blade, the satchel erupts in a great swathe of black fire that chases the sword's arc across the northern quarter of the market. Stalls, wagons, goods, and ghouls are together consumed, so that all that remains in the black flame's wake are hunks of molten coal, iron, and miasmatic residue. Their path paved, Gerard and Kanti race to attack, part of the original plan, two at once to overwhelm him. But the Revenant is fast, too fast and too wild. He hurls himself forward on three limbs, roaring, the fourth cocked back, defense abandoned, his attack so obvious that the king catches it on the mirror of his shield. The mithril mace head disappears, then the shaft, then Gerard's arm up to his wrist sinks into the frozen glass, emerges from the shield's opposite half shaped by fey hide and aimed back at the attacker. The trollskin hits, the revenant's skull shatters, Yet Kanti rushes dauntless, because he can't see, he doesn't know. Don't! I scream, but he's already mid-swing. Just like with Gerard, the sword sinks into the mirror and replicates in the troll skin, cuts through a headdress antler, and knocks him sideways off his feet. Kanti! It's me and Verva both screaming now while the old king chuckles, adjusts the kingmaker's aim, then changes his mind. 
Nay, he announces, new ghouls filtering in from the miasma curtain, thinner than before, and the hobs more skittish, less well-equipped, some with only spears of petrified wood. Ogier orders his taskmaster, Smite him that the gnolls and these women and children shall witness the perfection of my wisdom, that to kneel to me is to bend before the patriarch himself. The ghoul's whip cracks, yet Chalcois remains silent. I shiver, imagining the scars she'll carry on her back, and wonder if I'd have the perseverance to suffer like that for the sake of someone hardly more familiar than a stranger, lash after lash. The old king loses patience. Give it here, impotent fool. Centuries in waiting, yet nothing hath changed. Still I must do everything myself. Chalcois grunts as the whip cracks. She refuses to scream, just as Canty refuses to be defeated. He climbs to his feet, and the ill-equipped ghouls who at first were surrounding him retreat a few steps. Ogier notices, so he swings again, harder this time, so that the maiden cannot resist crying out. But by then, it's over. Canty thrusts his sword into the ground. Lightning courses up the blade, lighting the mithril bright as dawn, terrifying the hobs so that they scatter like pigeons as the Lord of Fear draws the sword from the road. The old king wheels, trains the death engine muzzle onto the figure before him which he cannot comprehend. Impossible! I taught no one such magic! How didst thou learn? Who told thee? You've gone senile, old man, to have forgotten who I am, Canty answers in a voice both his and not his own. Ogier staggers backward, muttering, Who art thou? Who art thou? I am the king, they answer. And the tyrant bellows, Dissolution! From the mouth of the engine glows shadows, then the roar of a dragon, then its belch of fire, black and transmutative, the Alcahest, rendered in the form of the Ouroboros, burst forth from the steel barrel and swallows Canty whole. My heart stops for a moment, but for only just, as I watch the flames whirl and circle and absorb into Virva's amulet. He says, I am Canty, Lord of the Black Flame, Warden of South, Master Pyromancer. And now, he takes the necklace in hand, and from the gouged socket of his headdress shines like the eyes of a revenant. I am the vessel, the prima materia, become rotundum. The lost pages of the furtive opus are found. I am they, the spirits, the enigma who straddles between stone and bedlam. I am the anvil and the hammer on whom the lapis is forged. Thou, Amgeen, reveal what hideth in the depths of shadowed Arcanum. Bring into light, thou Enantiodromia, what lieth beneath the bedlam of the squalor of the soul. His hand opens from around the amulet to reveal a second eye of Amgeen. Then that same hand rises overhead and takes hold of some massive invisible javelin. Electricity surges from the sword across his body and takes form as a crackling, snarling bolt of lightning and fire. Ogier cowers behind his shield, alone, abandoned. He knows nothing else and is struck down because of it, first by Gerard who rises headless behind him, then by the wrath of his own retribution.